It's all right, though. Good morning. It really is uh, an honor to get to speak to you. I, uh, I consider it very serious. This pastor is very conscientious about all of you and desperately wants to shield you from people making mistakes and doing silly things and, and all of the rest of that. So I take it as, as a, a serious opportunity that he is allowing me to spend some time with you and to talk to you, take it very seriously, pray a great deal about it, and, and prepare what I believe God's got in mind for you. So I hope you'll listen and, and take to heart the things with uh, that kind of gravity in mind, because that's certainly how I'm taking it as somebody who has spent some time preparing what we're doing today. I do take it as a privilege. I figured it was the safest possible ground to share with you the words of Christ. Pretty safe to be able to talk, say the same things that Jesus did. You're probably not going to be too far off as far as accuracy goes. Granted, we're in a different language and all of that, but the Son of God, our Savior, is somebody that we ought to be listening to. And he did have things to say to us. And so if I were to give a title to what I'm talking about today, it would be the command of Christ. And thinking of Christ giving commands is a little bit strange because we've been hearing all of this teaching about grace and we've been hearing from Galatians about how you don't get saved by obeying commands and the new covenant is not about keeping the law, not about trying to do the right thing, not about being obedient enough to please, and yet Jesus has commands. And in today's culture, I don't really want Jesus to have commands. The only command of Jesus that people in today's culture really like is the one that says, don't judge. And that's pretty much all they remember about that command, but they're pretty sure that Jesus doesn't want anybody to do any judging. But the reality is that Jesus had commands. And in fact, there's a verse in John 14, 15, which says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So here's Jesus saying, you know what? If you don't keep my commandments, you don't actually even love me, which is not the Jesus that is like, hey, everything is great. I got some good ideas for you, but you know, feel free to be free of all rules and obligations. So there is a command of Christ, and when I looked in kind of what scholars and people say about it, I saw numbers of how many commands Jesus has. Some say 49 commands of Jesus, some say 234 commands of Jesus, 800 commands of Jesus. I even saw somebody that said there was 1,050 commands of Jesus. And so, um, but the reality is that there's one that I want to talk about today, and that's John... uh, um, what I'm going to talk about is what I would say Jesus' third most impacting command. I figure the first two you got covered already. But the third one is the one that I'm going to talk about. And if you think about, well, what would the first command of Jesus be? Well, the first command of Jesus was repent. That was the nature of his teaching when he went around. He told people, repent. And that is the message of the gospel. The second command that we would come to think about is the Great Commission, where Jesus commands us to go into all the world and preach the gospel. But the third command comes from John 13, 34, at least in my view, the third most pointed command that Jesus has. And in that verse, do we have it? Yeah, there we go. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Uh, By this, you all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And he says it again in John 15, 12. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And he says it again in verse 17. These things I command you, that you love one another. And the context of this command leaves no doubt as to what he's talking about. The context of this command was Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. 
And remember in that account, if you know your Bible stories, Peter gets a little upset about this. He's like, well, you're not supposed to wash my feet. Mind you, previous, these guys were arguing over who got to have the best seat, who was going to be closest to Jesus at the table, who was going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I mean, this is the nature of the people that he's dealing with. Not like any of us, of course, but this is the nature of these people. And he is after humbling himself, washing the feet of his disciples, who by definition are lesser beings, the Son of God himself washes their feet. And then he says, just like I'm showing you, you need to love one another. And so the bar for what counts as loving one another, let's just say it's washing somebody's feet. And think of all of the things that are less than that that we could be doing which demonstrate the love of God. And so that is the context of this. So that's what we're going to talk about today. I've got a larger passage we'll go through, but let's pray first. God, I am grateful that you don't leave us without a guide, but that your spirit is with us, your word is with us, your urgings are with us, and your commands are with us. And I ask that you would help us to see in our own lives how we can make this real, how we can reflect your love and your glory in this world. And I thank you again for your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so what I want to do is I want you to turn to 1 John, which if you were here on Thursday night, you happen to know was written by the same John who wrote this. And 1 John chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 7 through 21. That is where John, the beloved disciple, actually reminds the followers of Jesus much later in his life of the exact same thing that he recorded in the gospel, this command that we are to love one another. So we have this custom here that we stand for the reading of the word, and I would like to follow that as well in respect. So if you would stand with me if you're able, and we're reading 1 John 4, starting in verse 7, going to 21. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this the love of God was manifest toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another... God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior for the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he abides in love, abides in God, and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we, have, we may have boldness in the day of judgment because he is, so are we in the world. As he is, so are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. You may be seated. Thank you. So love one another as explained, and this has some complicated bits in it, 
and I, and I get that. <clears throat> but as explained in 1 John, where he has had more time to ruminate on these things, but he closes out with the same command that he reported in the gospel itself. I have three initial thoughts. First, the greatest commandment we know is to love God, right? Okay, and the second is like unto it, to love your neighbor as yourself. So what's this new command? A new commandment I give you. What is unique about this particular command that Jesus would call it a new command? Well, the new piece of it is love one another. Now the love your neighbor, Jesus talked a great deal about that and he manifested that that was extremely important to God. And he gave the example of the parable of the, um, the Samaritan who falls in the ditch and is robbed and you know, gets, gets helped by somebody. That's loving your neighbor. And that is a command, arguably the second greatest command. But this new command adds the words love one another. So we know we have the obligation to love everybody, but there's something else that's going on where, where Jesus is instructing his disciples, a people in a particular room of a particular faith, to love one another. And that is the new command. And the second point on this is that this passage that we just read is not written as part of you know, the Judaizers and not written to Jews. It is written to Gentiles. It is written to people like us, people in the faith who are not Jewish, who don't follow the Jewish uh, customs and traditions. And so uh, now it does still address a little bit of the Judaizer thing because he does kind of handle some of those issues, but it doesn't rely on Abraham. It doesn't rely on the law. It doesn't rely on anything. It just says God is love and Jesus instructed us to love. That's pretty much the core of the argument that's being made. And third, I thought it was interesting to talk about this in the context of how we've been going through in recent weeks and talking about the Judaizers and about getting saved by your works and how you don't have to follow any rules. And the new covenant is not like the old covenant where you have to obey and you have to do good deeds and all of the rest of that. And yet we've got to somehow reconcile that with the command of Jesus to his believers and so there are obligations on us. And I think the nuance is when it comes to whether it's for the purpose of, sa- of sanctification. We don't obey because it's going to make us right with God, but we don't get off the hook because he says, if you actually know God, if God is in you, if you are in God, if you recognize God as who he is, then you will reflect that love that God has in mind for, for you to reflect. And so it's, it's a difference of the motivation and how it comes to be. If you're loving people because you're supposed to love people, you're not getting the actual fruit. And that's, that's on the one hand. On the other hand, if you're not loving people, why is that? And this raises some questions for your own soul's challenge in what do I actually believe about God? What do I actually know about? Do I really think that God saved me from eternal death through his love graciously when I didn't deserve it? And if, if that is true, then what do I owe? What, is that, what does that look like in my life? And so that's something that I think you'll see as we go through. So here we go. Uh, we're going to go through the verses a little bit and just kind of offer some thoughts on those. In verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. This is pretty much the entire argument of this entire section. If you are in God and God is love, this is what the fruit's going to look like. And so, this is great teaching, by the way. This is the way that he does it. Uh, Good teaching, good instruction, uh, good educational methods. You're supposed to tell people what you're going to tell them. Then you tell them. Then you tell them what you told them. 
And that's what he's doing here. He's starting out by telling them what he's going to tell them. And then in the upcoming verses, he'll tell them all the stuff. And then at the end, he'll wrap it up by telling them what he told them. So brilliant teaching on John's part here. We just got to copy it. John goes on to write in verse eight, he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And we hear this, you know, God is love. It's hard to get your mind around. What does that mean, God is love? Because we kind of have this idea of love as this fond feeling, and God is a fond feeling? That doesn't even make sense. So obviously love is bigger than our small mind's grasp of the concept of love. It's more than just a warm, fuzzy feeling. It is something that is demonstrative demonstrable. It is something that shows an action. There is a result of love that you can see. And that's what's going on in what God does when he gives his son to die and be punished for us. So I I do shudder a little bit when I think about this. What does it mean to be a person who does not love? I mean, can love come in like small doses? Can I have a half measure of love? Is that even possible? And it seems to be saying, he who does not love does not know God. We obviously grow as people and reflect more of God's attributes as we go along. But it, is, it should be alarming to us to think about what does it mean if you don't actually have any fruit of love in your life. All right, so in verse 9, he goes on to say, In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. One key point from here that, I meet, that jumps to mind is this, this is not an exchange. We're not trading something with God. We're not working a deal. It's not like, hey, we're peers and we're going to decide. I'll tell you what, you give me this and I'll give you that. This is God saying, you know what? You people are messed up, but I'm still in love with you. I still want to offer. I still have a gift. And it's not based upon God making a deal with us as peers, but God saving us as completely needy people. And this is making the argument that shows you how broad God's love is, what the reach of that is. It's to everybody, regardless of whether they deserved it or not, as if anybody deserved it. So God is fundamentally, in his nature, disposed to care about us. And it sets the bar for what comes next in these verses. He says in verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. There's that one another thing again. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. Now, the argument that he's making here is really clear. He's saying God loved us unconditionally, so we ought to reflect that. We ought to be willing to love unconditionally, not because we feel a good feeling about somebody, but because it's what God's nature is, and it is God being in us, being reflected in this world. It says, no one has seen God. And I was kind of curious, why in the world is this? Is nobody has seen God, and why, why is that there? And I think the key is to answer why we have this duty. Nobody sees God, but God is real in our space when his love is perfected in us, God abides in us, and makes possible what would be impossible. So we wouldn't even be able to do this, except that God made it possible, and I think that's what it's saying in those particular verses. It would not be seen The love wouldn't be seen and God isn't seen, but with God in us, then the love finally does get to be seen in this world. And I do believe that about what our role is as Christians. I don't think Christianity, I don't think God's saying, hey, come forward, say this prayer, and I'll give you a ticket to heaven, and we're good. I I really don't think that is the sum total of the greatest, most grand plan in the universe that God's been weaving as this giant tapestry since before time began was to give us a ticket to heaven in return for saying a prayer. That's not 
That can't be what it, all, what it is. There's got to be more to that. There's got to be purpose to everything that we do. What is the purpose of art? What is the purpose of work? What is the purpose of relationships? How does all of this fit together and make sense? If it's just a ticket to heaven, then why wouldn't you die once you got it? Here's your ticket to heaven, poof, we'll have a funeral right at, at your salvation ceremony. Because what's the point of living once you've got the ticket to heaven? I think this reflection of God's attributes, showing the world God's love, is what it means to be a person, is what the point is. We are unable to do this until God is in us. God is not in us until we recognize the salvation that he provided for us. And so, ironically, the love of God gives meaning to everything where everything has no meaning until then. We're just basically eating food until we die. So on to the next verses. God is fundamentally disposed to care about us. Okay, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No, I think I'm already past that. Yeah, I am past that, sorry. Verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We are the evidence or the testifier of God. His spirit abides in us and our confession that Jesus is the Son of God is essential for the rest of the world to experience this love. And so I think that is what's going on here. Now let's look at verse 17 and 18. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Now, some of this is a little, was hard for me to, to get. And so uh, the meaning was not as clear to me, but let me, let me turn around the order on this verse and maybe it will be a, a little bit easier for you. It certainly helped my mind. And here's kind of how he says it. He says, as God is, so are we in the world. Well, how was God? God was rejected and in spite of his unconditional love, he was, you know, God was offering love and was rejected, and that's how God was in the world. That's how we are. So as God is, so are we in this world. So we can have boldness in the day, day of judgment, knowing the God in us was reflected in the world. That gives us a boldness. We can have that boldness when we know I'm reflecting God's love, even if I'm rejected, even no matter what is going on. Therefore, love has been perfected in us. So that's the same things that were said but it's, I flipped the order around and it kind of makes the argument maybe our Western minds are better equipped to handle it that way. Or maybe uh, John got the words down, but uh, we're understanding them easier if we see them that way. And in verse 18, it says the exact same thing, but it says it in the negative. So he's talking about God is and we're offering love. And now it says, if there's fear, then you're not offering. If the judgment gives you cause to be afraid, then, then we are are in the negative, it is also true. To have fear indicates that love is not fully reflected. So if we are demonstrating God's love, we can have confidence in judgment. If we're afraid, it means we may not be actually fully reflecting God's love. Uh, that's how I take it to mean. So we're saying the same thing as a positive and as a negative. Let's go on to the other verses. 19, we love him because he first loved us. 20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? Pretty straightforward logical argument that he's got here, but it's kind of strong language. I mean, if you think about it. Um, now, hate his brother, maybe that does mean something other than loving imperfectly. 
I don't know. I mean, because he says, well, if you hate your brother, then clearly, you know, you've got a problem. But what does not loving your brother look like? How, how is being 100% ambivalent towards another person different from hating them? I mean, sure, you're not maliciously going out to do bad things to them or say bad things about them. But if you're 100% ambivalent towards other people, I don't, I don't hate anybody. I just, they might as well not exist in my view. Could be real similar to what hate actually is from God's perspective. Because certainly that's not what he did. He was not ambivalent towards us, but took steps to put together the means of our salvation and our ability to abide with him. And verse 21. And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. And we're full circle. It looks a lot like what we already heard from John in the beginning. This new command that I give you. Love your brother. Love one another. Yeah, John 13, 34, 35. I'll read it to you. A new commandment I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this will all men know, by this you will reflect the love of God, that you are my disciples if you love one another. And John goes on to write it again in 2 John. So this is the first John big long chapter, but he does say it again in 2 John. I, now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. Now, you might think, well, you know, that's the Gospel of John. John's this hippie, basically. He's kind of got all the love verses and all the nice, happy, warm, fuzzy stuff that's going on in the, in the book of John. Keep in mind that he does call this a commandment and that he does say some pretty strong things about hating God if you don't actually, uh, or, you know, not being in God if you actually hate your brother. So let's look at some of the people that maybe we have more respect for. Let's look at Paul. Paul in Romans 12.10 says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Romans 13, 7, give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, if honor. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandments there may be are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And Galatians, maybe you've heard something about Galatians recently. Galatians 6.10 says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. 1 Thessalonians 4.9, But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Peter, different guy altogether. 1 Peter 1.22, Now that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. And notice in all these cases, they're not connected to sanctification. It's not like you better love one another or you're not going to be okay. But it's more like the fruit of the Spirit, which, by the way, love happens to be one of the nine fruits of the Spirit from Galatians. It should be manifest if God's dwelling in you, if God is actually active in your life, if you are actually responding prop to the gospel, to the love of God expressed towards you, then this fruit would be evident, the fact that you love one another. So they're not descriptions of new rules necessarily, but they're descriptions of the manifestation of your salvation. What would it look like if somebody was abiding in Christ? Well, it would look like loving one another, because that's what God did. That's what Jesus does. And so even though they come as commands, they don't come as commands the way the law did. The law came as commands with curses next to them and all of the rest of this. I mean, they were like, here's what you got to do in order to be okay. But they do come as commands. But they also come as just 
truisms, they call them. If you love, then you're illustrating that God's love abides in you. So, the new command to love your brother is something that Jesus, John, the apostles, everybody that writes to us thinks should be prescriptions for our lives and something that we're supposed to act on, right? They weren't just saying feel warm, fuzzy feelings towards one another, uh, wave friendly or smile. Love meant something more than that. So let's look at some practical considerations. What does this mean? What does this mean to actually do this? And so let's, uh, let's talk first about people. Because obviously, to be involved in loving one another, you're going to have to be loving people. And what do we know about people? They're, they're, yeah, I heard somebody say something pretty harsh over here, but yeah. Let's say it the way the Bible says it. Uh, <laughs> in Genesis, the Bible says, after the flood and Noah's sacrifice, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood and never again will I destroy all living creatures. And Romans, of course, tells us that everybody has sinned and falls short. And uh, even John himself in 1 John says, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in us. Uh, Psalms talks about how evil and cunning people are. And really, if anybody's been around a two-year-old, do I have to convince you that people are bad? It always boggles my mind that, that people somehow believe that children are innocents and that they're wholesome and loving and good and angelic and somehow they get corrupted and become bad. And, and I'm thinking, these are the ravings of somebody who does not know what they're talking about or somebody who's got a really rosy picture of what's going on. Children are evil. They're just bad. I mean, they just really are. And I mean, they, it is, it, it, and you can even see their little minds work. I've got a granddaughter and we're, we're getting to see little minds at work and you're just like, you can see the will go, oh yeah? Oh yeah? You're going to make me do what you want? Oh, that's not how this goes. I mean, you can see the resistance. You can see the, oh, I'm annoyed enough that I'm going to do that thing that you said not to do. People are bad. But since these verses, love your brother or love one another, are not talking about regular sinners. They're talking about people in the church, people who have the faith, who obviously are all good. Oh, wait a minute. I could tell by your response that that's maybe not been your experience. It certainly hasn't been mine. So people of the faith are also bad people. So we can't pretend that God is somehow mistaken about the kinds of people that we're supposed to love. It's not like God is assuming that these are good people, so this shouldn't be too hard for you. uh, Because, you know, God modeled that. Oh, wait a minute. No, he didn't. He only loved people who were rotten, which is everybody. And he loved them in spite of them being rotten, which is the exact definition of love that we're supposed to model. So even if it is to, to just the people of faith, those people of faith are going to be disappointing and they're going to earn your rejection of them. They're going to earn your malice towards them. They're going to earn your, you know, fine, I'm not going to help you if that's how you're going to be. They've earned that as bad people. I've earned it, you've earned it, we've all earned it, where our selfishness and our self-interest and our you know, laziness and all of these things make us unpleasant to other people. And so we all have the excuse, I'm only going to help people who are good. But that is not what love is. That's not the charge that God's giving us. So I got some practical thoughts in the practice of demonstrating love, some things to remember. First, let yourself care. And I think one of the things that we discover is that we learn how to quash our emotional ties, especially in America where we have such an incredibly high standard of living. We have 
an amazing amount of autonomy. In all of human history, nobody has been able to be as autonomous as we are in America. We can earn enough to be entirely self-sufficient and live with government assistance or whatever else so that we don't have to need anybody. We can actually do that. Now, most of the world, extremely connected societies, extremely codependent societies where your family mattered a great deal, your community mattered a great deal, your livelihood was dependent upon the relationships that you have on a day-to-day, minute-by-minute, meal-by-meal basis. But in these days, we don't. So we have the luxury, unlike any other time in history, of squashing any urges that we have for, for connection, for emotional connection. We can be independent, proud, Western United States people who don't need anybody and don't have to be engaged with anybody. And that's a mistake. That's something that, we're, that doesn't feed the concept of love one another. And so we need to, to do that. All right, second, stimulate yourself to care. And that means looking, changing your own perspective, looking for those opportunities, starting to not just like repress any need to be involved with other people, but now looking for them. How do I find the opportunities that are going on around me and get myself engaged in other people's life? Here's an interesting example as far as this mindset goes. My mom tells the story of how she used to go to PTA meetings and she used to go to craft groups or classes or whatever else, and she would go with other women. This was, you know, in the what, uh, 60s, I guess, when I guess that's how society worked, you know. Um, and so she'd go to these things, and these women would all be bad-mouthing their husbands, I mean, regularly, like they'd all be sort of one-upping each other on, on negative stories about their husbands. And it occurred to her, she was new in her marriage and everything, and it occurred to her that she thought, it doesn't have to be that way. I don't have to be somebody who's looking for better stories about what's wrong with my husband. And she set out to actually flip the script on that and to actually find positive stories about her husband. And there exist. I mean, you know, there are good things about my dad, and there are things that are bad about my dad, right? We all have that in us. And so, but she would choose to see and to find and to discuss in these groups and meetings all of the wonderful things about her husband. And of course, that is something that became a life habit for her, but it's something that we should be doing too. We shouldn't be just looking for like, well, here's what I don't like about so-and-so. You can make yourself go, but they are amazingly artistic, but they are super helpful and generous, but they are, and start to think on the positive side because it does make it easier when you stimulate yourself to care for other people. And then just in our regular lives, we get a lot of these opportunities. You see announcements today, right? Our announcements today had examples of what you should be doing if you wanted to help your brothers, sisters, they need help with children's care. They need help putting together different packages for the, for the mission work. Uh, I mean, you, the opportunities are there. When you see those as not like, oh, nope, shield's on, shields on full, Captain Kirk. I'm not taking in any of these sorts of obligations. See them instead as, what are the opportunities around me that I can see where I have the chance to live this concept of love one another? And that's a mindset change for yourself. So you're not set to repel. And then third, if necessary, discipline yourself to care. Discipline yourself. Now, let's take Mother's Day, for example. Mother's Day is coming. We know it's coming. There's a certain, you know, we, we understand how Mother's Day works, right? Mother's Day is coming. We got to do something for Mother's Day. If you don't discipline yourself, you will botch it, right? I mean, just as a kid, I, as a young man, I have botched Mother's Day more times than I've ever done anything spectacular on it. 
I won't tell you what the ratio is, but not an impressive one. But if I wanted to say, all right, wait, 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 wait. I do, in fact, love my mother. I do, in fact, respect her. I want to honor her. In order to hit the mark of making Mother's Day work, I got to start planning in advance. I got to deliberately intend to do something before Mother's Day. I've got to figure out what's going on. It may require me to put something on my calendar. It may require me to add something to my to-do list. It may require me to say, remind me that I need to, to somebody to be an accountability partner. There are disciplines that I could take to make sure that I don't botch that when Mother's Day rolls around. In the same way, you can make yourself take on some habits, look for some opportunities, give yourself a quarterly evaluation. Hey, it's uh, the solstice. I'm going to take a look at how am I doing on being generous, being loving, you know, helping, loving one another among the brotherhood as Jesus requires in this command. So disciplining yourself, yes, that does make it into a chore, but the reality is we are lazy people. And without actually some element of controlling ourselves, we don't do as much as we otherwise would do. All right, fourth thing, there are some pitfalls in this whole concept of love, uh, even loving one another. And the pitfalls that I would want to point out are, we also have an urge in ourselves to be needed and to be important and to feel good about ourselves. We have various itches. And so loving is not self-promotion, right? It's not like, hey, I've got an oil change business, so I think I'm going to love all of my neighbors by letting them know what a great oil change business that you can come and pay for for me. I mean, self-promotion can be a number of different things, but the reality is a lot of our interactions that we have with people, we have an agenda. There is actually something that I'm hoping to get out of this. So in loving one another, keep in mind that I have motives for being engaged with people, for trying to, you know, and it may be as simple as, I think you're funny, and so I'm hoping that if I talk to you, I'll get to laugh once or twice. Well, that's not love. That's me looking for a, a free comedian for a minute, you know? Um, and it could be a host of things. But if you examine your own motives, you know, what interactions do I have with people and why am I doing that? In a lot of cases, and that's not bad. I think connections through exchanges are very, very important. So I don't have a problem with somebody with an oil change business wanting to talk to me about that. That's great. I believe in that sort of thing. But don't make no mistake, that's not demonstrating love. That's me and that person making a deal, which is okay. That's not what Jesus did. He didn't make a deal with people. I'll tell you what, I'll give you a ticket to heaven if you do these four things for me. All right, another pitfall. When it comes to loving, sometimes you see that there are these uncomfortable situations that come up. There are people that are going through significant hardships, or there are people that are really broken or falling in a particular way, or there are things that I just don't know that much about. And so rather than engage and connect. I'm like, I'm going to be awkward in this situation. I'm probably going to say the wrong thing. I don't understand how this is going. I've never lost a child before. Uh, so I will be on the safe side by stepping back and putting the shields up because I don't want to do something uncomfortable and I don't want to do anything awkward. But there's some humility that we need to have. We're going to, we're going to be awkward and uncomfortable. The reality is we pretty much are all the time anyway. And so to use that as an excuse to not engage with somebody, well, so the irony is that somebody who's going, who needs a hand the most has the most shunning happening because we all self-select to shun. To like, oh, well, I'm not shunning, but I just don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to do the wrong thing. I don't understand what's going on and I don't know them well enough to try to get involved and so I'm going to not do anything. And if everybody does that, then that person gets nothing for help because everybody's too awkward to actually step into it. So that is a pitfall to watch out for. Don't let 
your own um, discomfort be an excuse to not actually demonstrate the love of God. We were pretty awful when he loved us. The other thing is when we talk to people, and I think all of us are guilty of this, a lot of times people are talking for the sake of their own adrenaline rush that comes with telling you something and telling you a story and being the one talking. That's, kind of, that's still a self-itch. I got this itch and I want to get to talk to people, so I'm going to approach you and talk to you and I'm going to approach you and talk to you and I'm going to approach you and talk to you and I'm going to approach you and talk to you. If it's for me, then it's not really love. Am I talking for the sake of myself to say words and to be smart and to be funny and to be, you know, uh, well, let me give you some advice or whatever else. There's itches that we have that are scratched in talking that are not the same thing as loving somebody else. Loving requires listening. Loving requires trying to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. Would this conversation be boring to me if someone was doing it to me? Ooh, yes, it would. Then I'm done. I, I, I need to turn it and make it about us, not about me telling you my cool story. Okay, so pitfall. Another pitfall, only loving people that you already like. Now, you're not gonna get to demonstrate love to every single person that you come across. That's a, that's a given. And that's even, I think, part of why this love one another is different than love your neighbor. Love your neighbor is still an obligation, but love one another, especially those of the household of faith, as it says in Galatians, is something that's more targeted, more focused. But even within that, we can self-select down to like, well, here are the four really neat people that I like to spend time with because I enjoy it so I'm gonna love them. And you should, I mean, I get that. But if you're selecting who you love because of how much you like them already, you're not doing what God did. Because what God did was like a bunch of jerks. I mean, a bunch of jerks. And he just stepped out and said, you know what? I think the crucifixion of the cross is, is the right reach of love that I wanna do for all those jerks out there. And so, again, if you're selecting who you're loving based upon whether you already like them, that was the point of the parable about the Samaritan. A Samaritan was a person that Jews did not like. They would never have selected a Samaritan to be somebody to help. And that's why he uses that particular one. All right, and lastly, I wanna wrap up with some practical steps. Practical steps. First of all, how many uh, friends do you have? And, and all of us kind of have a, let's say, a, a Rolodex. A, a Rolodex for you young people is, is a piece of paper that's got contact information for somebody that sits on this thing that spins around so you can look up phone numbers on it. Think of it as your contacts. How many people are, do you have in your contacts that are, that are friends for you, right? And that number, believe it or not, for everybody is different. We don't all have exactly 50 contacts and seven close contacts and two really good friends. Some people have very few of all of them. Some people have tons and tons of all of them. We have different personality types and we have different capacity to engage in relationships. And I get that. But if your number is zero, or if, it, if, you, if you feel like, I don't, I, why do I not have friends like other people do? Again, your personality is different. But if you wanted to look at a measure of, hey, what, is, what does love look like in my practical life? Pretend like you've got a Rolodex. Who's on that Rolodex? Who are the people that I would help move? How many people would I help move on my Rolodex? That's a good indicator, right? Because nothing says love like helping people move. I'm helping my parents move, so I happen to know the cost of that particular gift. Um, but I mean, have, really, like, if they put a general announcement, so-and-so needs help moving, maybe if we were like, oh, this is my charitable act for the week, that's great, and, and I'm gonna go help. That's not quite the same thing as, all right, how many people could call me and go, oh, Forgot to mention, I'm moving tomorrow and I need for you to take a half day off work and help me load trucks because they're coming in first thing in the morning. How many people would you do that for? If that number is zero, hmm. 
Now, now, being married and having a family gives you a new dimension, and we'll get to that in a second. Well, let's get to that now. In this particular case, I only want to talk to people who are seven years old. Is there anybody that's seven-year-old here? Who's seven? Anybody seven? And nine. I'm talking to seven-year-olds and nine-year-olds. Is anybody nine? You're, you're nine? Okay. How about 11-year-olds? Do I have any 11-year-olds here? 11-year-olds? No? Oh, okay, 11. And then 13-year-olds. Okay, the rest of you all don't have to listen. Just you guys that are those ages, here's what I got for you. Your family is love one another, right? And so the obligation that all of the, these other people of other ages have, uh, you know, let's talk to just the people who are these particular ages. What did I say? 7, 9, 11, and 13. If you're 7, 9, 11, or 13, how is your relationship with your siblings? How is your relationship with your parents? Do you show love, find ways to actually live God's love to your siblings, to your parents, to your extended family, your cousins or your grandparents or whatever? What does that look like? And there are things that you should do that would make that work. Now, if you're struggling with that, if you hate your brother, and Jesus says, John says in this chapter, you've got to love your brother to demonstrate the love of God then this is for you. That's something that you need to do. And of course, all of us have family. All of us have this situation. And uh, most of us would have people in the faith as well if you want to limit it to that, but whatever. Here's another practical step, hospitality. Now, there were scriptures about hospitality. And hospitality means, you know what? I'm going to give free food to somebody. I'm going to invite them over and, and prepare food for them. Or I'm going to take them out to lunch. Or I'm going to have a barbecue and have some people or whatever. However you want to make that work that fits with you. Practicing hospitality is showing the love of God one to another. And so it is a part of this mandate. Now, whether everybody has to do like giant grand meals or anything, I don't think that matters. But if you're doing nothing, then maybe it's an area that you can put in your 2021 goals for the year. You know what? We want to have at least two people over in the entire year that we will spend time with to give them the gift of this meal and to learn more about them and to find connection with them just as an intentional discipline if you want to be a rule person. We're going to find two people in the whole year and we're going to put it on our calendar. Would it be better than you did this year? Maybe it would. And so that's, that's an example of, of how that can work. Also, we do have small groups. And the point of small groups for this church is exactly this. Here we are. We have 15, 10 minutes of, you know, greet your partner and you find that couple of person in your row that you always read and say, hi, hi, things are going good. Yeah, things are going good. Okay, great. Thanks. We're turning back, wait for the sermon to start. But the small group is about, you know what? No, we're going to deliberately spend time together. We're going to talk about each other's issues. We're going to figure out what's going on with your kids. Well, this is what's going on with our kids. Oh my gosh, I had that happen with my kid. Here's what, what I have to offer on. And then you're starting to share common goals and values and, and agendas, if you will hospitality and small groups. Helping. Again, helping is not to scratch an itch you've got. I'm going to check my I was a good boy today box by helping somebody do something or whatever. But helping as living God's love is what's going on. Volunteer opportunities obviously give you that. One element to this too that I'm just going to throw in here as an aside is keeping your word. Now, when you love somebody and you tell them you're going to do something, the love of God is shown when you actually follow through, swear to your own hurt, but change not like God does. And so what if God was, what if Jesus was like, you know, 
I'm just really busy this weekend. I don't know that crucifixion is going to fit in my schedule this weekend. So I think I'm going to reschedule that if that's all right. That's not how God's love works. And it shouldn't be how ours work. And so I, I take it really important. Make yourself give pledges and fulfill the pledges because that's how discipline works as well. What's the promise that you're making to somebody else as far as help, as far as you know, lending a hand or being a part of the program that's coming up on, on Christmas or whatever else? And then keep your word. And finally, selflessness and courtesy. Selfishness is the enemy of love. If I'm first, if I get the best, if I am first through the line, if I don't, you know, if I'm shouldering other people out, then that is not love. And loving one another means, and Jesus demonstrated that. What does foot washing mean? You know what the most humble servant does? They wash the feet of the other people. And that's what Jesus did. And he said, hey guys, this is how this is going to go. If you want to be the greatest, you must be the servant of everybody else. Courtesy, the kind words that we say, the gracious way that we speak, the uh, thinking through the perspective of others, manners, which seem to be absent largely in our society today, those are all signs of love. Likewise, selfishness. I saw somebody say that uh, you can tell a lot about a person by what they do with their shopping cart. Right? Shopping cart. Like, here's, here's Christianity 101. What do you do with your shopping cart? Now, of course, we're all good people and we all do exactly what we're supposed to, but this is the mentality that I'm talking about. Somebody somewhere has to actually deal with what you left behind when you finish your grocery shopping experience. Somebody has to do that. How do you treat them? How do you make it? Do you like, haha, I'm just going to leave this by my car? Somebody has to park next to that. I mean, there's these habits that we have that are illustrated through these little things. And what did Jesus say? This is how you demonstrate God's love to the world, by the love that you show to one another, the love that you show to your neighbor. And this is a commandment that Jesus has for us. So, obey the command of Christ, practice random acts of kindness and senseless acts of beauty. Remember, without God's moral order, kindness is senseless and beauty is random. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you don't leave us adrift, but that your spirit guides us into all truth that your word shows us your way, and that your teaching gives us the light. I ask that you would help us to think on these things, to meditate, and to make them a part of our lives so that we can show your love to the world as you desire. Let us have a good day today and and a fulfilling week demonstrating your virtue in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.